Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 20, where we get to take up the wonderful subject of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last Sunday was an interruption to our expository preaching through the Gospel of John to remind us that there's a whole lot more about the death of Jesus Christ than John 18 and 19 tells us about. John 18 and 19, if you'll read it and think about what you're reading, is an investigative report that Jesus was truly dead and truly buried. And that was John's purpose, and his purpose wasn't beyond that. Paul's going to take us far beyond that. He wants to convince us that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at this, those particular two chapters, he was to prove to us that he was indeed dead and was indeed buried. <clears throat> so we had the name of the man whose tomb was used. We hear the story, and we read it, about the soldier piercing the side of Jesus. We read that his legs weren't broken. We saw scripture fulfilled in John 18 and 19 to give us all the evidentiary proof Jesus was truly dead. That's right. And Jesus was truly buried. Right. And he had a flesh body, just like ours, which was attacked as early as the first century while John was still alive. Because his evidence of an antichrist was, he that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is the spirit of antichrist. He was already dealing with it while he was alive, the one that wrote us this gospel account. When we turn the page and go into John chapter 20, we're at the resurrection. Last Sunday was to take Paul's doctrine that we, under, we know about the death of Jesus Christ and look ahead to the time when that death will become far more important than it is to this point. The glory of God has not yet been revealed in the universe. The sun, the moon, the stars are pitiful examples of the glory of God. I love them. You love them. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. But the heavens don't de declare the glory of God like it is going to be declared. God has made all things for himself, and that has not yet been disclosed to the universe. God's made all rational creatures for his own pleasure. It has not yet been revealed to the universe. God's made a choice as potter to make some vessels to honor and others to dishonor, not yet revealed to the universe. You may know from the Bible that Cain was not one of God's elect. You don't know where Cain is. You don't know how he's suffering. You don't know the sins in his life. All's going to be made manifest. You know that Abel is in heaven. He's in the hall of faith. But Abel had sins like Cain did. But Abel's going to be judged righteous by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to happen at the great day of judgment. And so that was last Sunday. We needed that interruption to appreciate the cross in its glory. John's just listing details he said, she said, he went, they went, they did, they didn't do. That's all you have in John 18 and 19. Think about it. But when we turn the other pages of Scripture, we find out that there's a day of terror and wrath coming in the which the cross of Christ will make all the difference between the eternal destiny of rational creatures. It's huge. And God will reveal His glory. Remember, we looked at some passages of Scripture that said, in his times, he shall show. What if God, willing to show and make his power known, he hasn't done that yet. He hasn't shown his glory. He hasn't made his power known. You say, well, what about that thunderstorm? That isn't his power. That's a token of it that you can handle, like a little kitten. You're a little kitten, and you don't want to light firecrackers off next to a little kitten. You're a little kitten, and he gives you a little bit of thunder. Wait till he splits this universe open, and the heaven and the earth flees away from the face of him that sits on the throne. That's what we read in Revelation chapter 20. That's what's coming. And every single rational creature that was a human will be raised from the ground to stand trial before him. But we're at John 20. That was last week. I wanted to remind you why we took that one week's break. I didn't want to take that one week's break until the Lord reminded me of the importance 
of the cross is yet future. What happened when Jesus died on the cross and ascended up into heaven was the legal phase of salvation, out of our sight. We know a little tiny bit about it by reading it in the Bible, but that cross is going to be made very evident and visible, and it's going to change the destinies of men. And it's the book of life of the Lamb slain, with the emphasis on the word lamb and the emphasis on the word slain. That's when the cross is going to be valuable, when the books are opened and our works would condemn us to hell, but the book of life is opened, and our name being there commends us to heaven because it's the book of life of the lamb slain. Then the cross, we see it in all of its glory and power and effect, and that's what we looked at. We also looked at the fact that people have questions about what happens when a person dies. Their body goes in the ground, their spirit, where does their spirit go? Does it go to some holding place like purgatory or otherwise known as Hades or Sheol and all these different Hebrew and Greek words they want to play around with when they don't know the language? Where does the spirit of a man go when he dies? If he's able to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. He's in heaven, just like Paul knew and just like what happened to the saved thief. If he's like Cain, then he's like the rich man and his spirit is instantly in hell and his body's in the ground. Why do all their spirits have to come back, repossess their bodies to stand trial before God? For the glory of God, because it hasn't been shown to the universe yet. Why did we incarcerate Charles Manson and the Manson family for two years before we sentenced them on seven counts of first-degree murder to the gas chamber of California? Why did we incarcerate him for two years, then bring him back? What changed after his trial as far as Charles Manson? Nothing. He was incarcerated before, he's incarcerated after. What changes to Cain in a day that's coming? Nothing. He's been incarcerated for 6,000 years, and he's going to be incarcerated for eternity. You say, but what about time served? As I told you last Lord's Day, he'll get time served. Because time served against eternity doesn't really matter. It's just all, don't think about those kind of thoughts. Think about what the Bible tells us. Every spirit will get its body back and will all stand before God in one great judgment day. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. That's the one huge event that's coming and the cross is of, all, is of great importance. Amen. Cain's been in hell for 6,000 years. He'll repossess his body. He'll stand before God. The books will be opened. Every secret fault of Cain will be brought forth and it's far more than just killing Abel. And then he will be remanded to the lake of fire, put right back where he has been detained. We do it in our criminal system. Every arrest, arraignment, trial, prosecution, defense, sentencing, we do all of it following the Bible. When was Cain arrested? When he, when he died. And when was he arraigned? when he met God for a few seconds before he was sent to hell. Then there's a trial. Does Cain have anything to say in his defense? Am I my brother's keeper? This punishment is too great for me. Lord, Lord, have we, have, have we not? Have we not? Remember all that from last Lord's Day. Because what we get to do now is look at our Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the legal penalty of death for us, and rose from the dead, showing he had been successful. We just sang that he rose in triumph, victorious over his foes. His Jewish foes, his Roman foes, his devilish foes, and the foe of sin, and the foe of God's own justice, and its claim on us. So that's what we get to study now. John chapter 20. I hope that you might consider the little outline that I've made for you for John chapter 20, so that you can see its pieces. The first 10 verses are the apostle verifying the empty tomb. CSI information, an empty tomb. Verses 11 through 18, Mary Magdalene sees the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
verses 19 through 23, the ten apostles see Jesus. Verses 24 through 29, the doubting Thomas sees Jesus. And the last two verses, why John wrote John. It's all here in John chapter 20. Let me read to you the first ten verses. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. The first ten verses. How long could we spend on the first clause? The first day of the week. Do you remember a sermon series entitled Sabbatarianism? Sabbatarian or a Christian? Which are you? Because you can't be both. Right. Sabbatarians are not Christians. Jesus Christ abolished the Sabbath. So we could work those words for quite a while. There's so much material here. And it's fascinating material. And I hope that you will embrace it with me and rejoice in it. And may the Lord use it to convict you, convince you, and excite you about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead for us and lives forevermore, is coming for us, and has the keys, the authority and power of hell and of death. Right. I have some introductory material, so please don't be frustrated with me. I'm frustrated with me enough. Because the more you study, the more you see that you want to explain and I'm not going to explain the three days and the three nights right now. You should know that. I may do it Wednesday evening. I may do it with slides for you to be able to see visually how the days played out in crucifixion week. But I don't want to do that right now. It's a distraction. Because the main thing we want to see is a risen Lord Jesus Christ. And is there evidence that he rose? The number of days that he was in the ground and which days of the week they were are not evidence that he rose. We want the evidence right here in John 20, that he did indeed rise from the dead. You heard Matthew's approach, Mark's approach, Luke's approach to this event. And it's important for, I hope that you've noticed some of the differences. If you want a puzzle, if you want a puzzle, it's not the little differences that we saw in the death account or the crucifixion account of chapters 18 and 19. It's in the resurrection account. It could be said... No man has ever satisfactorily solved it except to his own conscience. Because how each man has solved it might not satisfy your conscience. Because there are little adjustments that have to be made on the viewpoint of the writer as to why John only mentioned Mary, but Mary wasn't alone. She had a cast of thousands with she had many women with her, right here. She admits it in verse 2 when she said, We know not where they have laid him. We, plural. But John wants to focus on Mary, because John always focused on individuals. Haven't we learned that going through the Gospel of John? It was Nicodemus, we get a whole chapter. If it's the woman of Samaria, we get a whole chapter, John 4. If it's John chapter 1, we get Andrew and Peter, we get... Uh, Philip and Nathaniel, we get individuals. We get the man born blind in John chapter 9. We get the impotent man beside the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. John wants us to realize that Jesus deals 
with his followers one by one. There's going to be one of them that one of the two apostles believes in this chapter and one doesn't. I hope you already picked that up from the reading last night and this morning. May the Lord bless us right now to look at, look at the resurrection. This is a great doctrine of our religion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no hope for your resurrection if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's what Paul argued in a very detailed fashion in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That is the resurrection chapter of the Bible. And he went to task with the Corinthians for denying the resurrection of dead bodies because he says if you deny the resurrection of dead bodies, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is vain, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. See, we need John 20. John 19 didn't save us. Remember, it is finished didn't mean that the work of redemption was finished. It meant that everything Jesus had to do before he died was finished. Because then he died. Because he had taken care of the last words, I thirst. Then he said it is finished. Then he could commend his spirit into his father's hands. The most important event, in fact, the apostles had to prove was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wherever the apostles went, they had to prove the resurrection. They didn't have to prove the death. Why didn't they have to prove the death? Because the death was a public fact. You could go down to the library and know that Jesus of Nazareth had been killed by the Romans and crucified on a tree. You you knew what day it was. You knew who was in charge of the trial. It was all public information. And this, I don't know which piece of information I'm going to share with you might trigger your affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and and the religion that we have and the faith that we have. But one of them is the resurrection was not public knowledge. The resurrection was private. The Jews knew that they had killed Jesus or they wouldn't have been satisfied. The Romans knew they had killed Jesus or they wouldn't have completed their job. But the resurrection, only 520 people were firsthand witnesses about it. And those were people from Galilee for the most part. As you just heard from a couple of the gospel accounts, the apostles were to go into Galilee and there Jesus would meet up with them as he had told them while he was alive. But this, they had to impress on people the importance of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we're not saved legally. Without the resurrection, there's no final salvation because Jesus isn't going to come back for our bodies. The death was public. The resurrection was private. Well, how do they convince people to believe it? By eyewitness accounts of many infallible proofs and mighty miracle-working power by those that said those things. And by those three evidences, there was enough evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead for those that had been saved by the grace of God and regenerated and would believe it. Others just mocked about the resurrection. Much learning doth make thee mad, Paul. They laughed in Athens, Greece. But some men walked out, and a woman walked out of Mars Hill and followed the Apostle Paul and his doctrine of the resurrection. We've heard strange things from thee, things we've never heard before. That's why he got to Mars Hill. Do you remember him in Acts chapter 17 in the marketplace? He's talking about the resurrection. We've never heard such things. And all they did was hear new things in Athens. It tells us that about them, but that's something new they'd never heard because our religion is unique. The founder of our religion is not buried someplace like Mohammed. The founder of our religion is in heaven. Thank you for your prayer this morning, Titus. You know it better than most. You've been around those people that follow Mohammed. Where's Buddha? Where's Joseph Smith? We've been over this before, but our Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven. Jesus answered the scribes and Pharisees about his identity by a timed resurrection. When they said, show us a sign, he said, I'll give you the sign of Jonas. As Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, I'll be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. That was his sign, that he was the son of God. That's how important the resurrection is. Though he performed many miracles, he directed skeptics to the sign of Jonas. It was not very challenging in the first century to prove the existence and ministry of Jesus Christ because it was well known. Remember Cornelius? 
When Cornelius met Peter, Peter said, Jesus of Nazareth and his preaching ministry and miracle ministry, you already know about. Acts 10, I have something else to tell you. He rose from the dead, and we are his specially chosen witnesses of that event. So Cornelius had heard the general rumor, the general news about Jesus of Nazareth, but he didn't know about his resurrection from the dead, and then he got it from an eyewitness. He got it from Peter. Did you hear the gospel account? Go tell the apostles and Peter that I'm alive. And so Peter was an eyewitness on several occasions. And the Bible wants us to know that Cephas saw him individually and separately, and he was able to tell Cornelius, the Italian Roman centurion, about that. It was his resurrection that the Jews and the Romans had the opposite impetus to deny to everyone. They wanted to declare his death, but his resurrection they couldn't. If the Jews admitted his resurrection, they had murdered their own Messiah. If the Romans had allowed a resurrection, they couldn't keep a dead man under a governor's seal. Both parties were highly motivated to deny the resurrection of the dead. And this is why we have four gospel accounts and they give us all this information that the resurrection had every enemy opposing it, but there's lots of evidence by eyewitnesses, and we have an eyewitness account. Remember in John 19, John wanted us to know how much of an eyewitness he was that he saw the soldiers break the legs of the two thieves, but he didn't break the leg, they didn't break the legs of Jesus. They pierced him in the side, fulfilling two different scriptures. And John is going to write down information, and I've said it already this morning, but if you'll think about it, it's kind of tedious, trivial information. You know, it's not about justification, and it's not about the kind of body that we're going to get, and it's not about planting a seed in the ground and the huge tree that comes out. It's three verses about the linen clothes, one, two, three. You've got to repeat three times about the linen clothes a CSI investigator inspired for the first time. I'm sorry about your favorite programs. I have a book up here on the platform that you're welcome to look at. It's just an example called The Cold Case for Christianity. And while this is a rather recent volume, and it was written by an LAPD CSI investigator who was an atheist, and at the age of 35, decided to employ everything that he'd ever learned and everything he'd ever applied for the LAPD toward Christianity to prove it wrong. It's, but I want to tell you something, it's only one. If you go online and type in cold case Christianity or criminal scene investigation, you'll find numerous men that have written for the last couple of hundred years using the best information that they've had to solve crimes proving Jesus rose from the dead. It's just, now all we need is this. Uh, all we need is this, but it's, it's pleasant to read about it and to read their methods and for them to look at some of these verses that you blow over, that you wonder, why are there three verses about linen clothes? They understand that a grave robber doesn't come in and take a body and leave the clothes. And that a grave, a grave robber where there's guards doesn't come in and fold up the clothes neatly and put them in little piles like he's at summer camp about to get white glove. They see every... I'm just, John wants us to know and God wants us to know there was evidence for the resurrection. Not just scripture. We're going to be told in verse 8 that John believed. But in verse 9, we're going to be told they didn't, John didn't believe because of the Scripture. He didn't yet remember the Old Testament verses, nor yet Jesus' words about the resurrection. You know what convinced John? Three verses about the linen clothes. 
He looked at the linen clothes. Nobody would steal a body without carrying it off in the clothes. Who wants to carry a 72-hour-old body without the linen wrappings around it? And it's just all beautiful. This is our Lord, and this is the Bible. And people want to make fun of the Bible. The Bible is detailed and gives us wonderful information. It gives us prophecies, but it also gives us many infallible proofs. And it's going to get, of course, it's going to get a lot more when Jesus appears to his apostles this night and holds out his hands and says, Yes, it is me. I'm no pretender. It's me. God made his death very open and public, but his resurrection was private news to friends only. There were about 520 eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus, and there were many infallible proofs of his life that Acts chapter 1 tells us that he showed them, and then gifts of the Holy Ghost. To these fishermen, when they went out and said, we want to tell you about Jesus of Nazareth, that God raised him from the dead. You know, it was hard to believe an uneducated fisherman, but then when they would perform some miracle, sometimes involving resurrecting a person from death themselves, there was a tendency to believe that gospel, especially by those that were born again, or only by those that were born again is what I meant, and so they believed. John's details about persons, words, linens, stone, are all facts to bolster the resurrection case. Salvation from sin required the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Faith that gives assurance of eternal life has to include the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We have to believe the resurrection. We want to believe the resurrection. The resurrection has hope for us. Amen. The death by itself doesn't have very much hope for us because without the resurrection, the, the death doesn't give us hope. But it was by the resurrection that the death defeated him that had the power of death, that is the devil, which we will celebrate today from Hebrews chapter 2 when we come to the Lord's table in a little while. Remember that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Whosoever believeth on him shall never be confounded. If you don't ever want to be confounded, then believe this record that God's given, his son rose from the dead, and get excited about three verses talking about linen burial clothes. The Gospel of John is special and unique. What he related here is additional information beyond the other Gospels. We find a focus on Mary Magdalene to the exclusion of many women that came with her. We find more of the personal relationship between Jesus and Mary. We're not going to be able to get past verse 10 today. Let's just uh, see if we can get to verse 10. I know what's past verse 10. I've been waiting to get past verse 10. I want to get to Mary Magdalene. I want you to be like Mary Magdalene, every man in here. Every woman in here, like Mary Magdalene, she had passion for the Lord Jesus Christ that was second to none. And there's a reason. He had cast seven devils out of her. The Bible gives us the axiom that those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who aren't forgiven much, don't love much. Mary had been forgiven much, and she loved much. She was the most passionate follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He appeared to her first. She was the one that stayed at the tomb and kept on weeping there, She's the one that went in and talked to angels and wasn't afraid of them and said, where have you taken them? Because I want to go take my Lord away. And you know who's standing outside hearing these kind of words? Uh, you talk about the Lord in everything you do because he gets to hear those words. Mary goes out and, and sees what she thinks is the gardener. And the gardener asks her why she's weeping. And she says, sir, if you have taken my Lord away, if you've taken my Lord away, then tell me where you've laid him so that I can go take him away. Mary? Oh! Who hasn't loved that in the history of reading the Bible as a saved person? I want every one of you to be like Mary Magdalene, but we're not going to get there today. So that was just a... Listen, I've had to be, fuss I've had to be worrying about this for weeks, wanting to get to John chapter 20 and verses 11 through 18. 
I love those verses, and I, I love Mary Magdalene as a great example. And I, and I want to love the Lord Jesus Christ like Mary Magdalene, and I want all of you to do the same. We find more of the details pertaining to Peter and John and their reaction to finding the empty tomb. We find dated meetings with the apostles and Jesus displaying his wounds and doing miraculous ministerial things with them before we get out of John chapter 20 that the other gospels don't have. We find doubting Thomas and how the Lord Jesus Christ blessed us for believing in his resurrection, though we haven't seen him. Right. And that's, that's of great comfort. Now I'm going to do something that's going to take a little while because I believe it's worth it. Because I want to convince you of the importance of the resurrection of the dead. And I don't have a handout, children. And I don't have a handout, those of you that learn visually, and it would help you to, be, to write down some of these things. But I'm going to have 13 P words that relate to the resurrection of Jesus Christ because I want to convince you of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is greater than these details. These details are to give us evidence separate from Scripture that Jesus did rise from the dead and that eyewitnesses did not collaborate nor conspire. Some believed, some didn't believe until there was sufficient evidence to do so, that they were very cautious, very careful, wondering about things. But let's go through a few P's about resurrection and see if I can't convince you of its importance. Children, if you've got a writing utensil and something to write on, it may be interesting to write down these uh, 13 P words about resurrection. First of all, the prophecy of the resurrection. Did the Old Testament prophesy the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You know what prophesied his death. You know what prophesied God would have a son. So you know his birth. You know his death. Did it prophesy his resurrection? In Psalm 2, when it describes the rulers taking counsel against Jesus Christ, God answered by saying, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Amen. This is my son. This day have I begotten thee. Those words are about his resurrection because they follow the efforts of civil rulers to take away his life. But God laughed at those civil rulers and said, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Though you killed him, I raised him from the dead. And the words, This day have I begotten thee, is not eternal sonship, for sure. It's not his birth, though it sure sounds like it, it's his resurrection because Acts 13 tells us so. You want to see it. I can tell your doubt. I can tell I have a, a few Thomases here. Look at Acts chapter 13. And if there's a doubting Thomas on each one of these 13, we will not make much progress today. But I'm really not worried about it. I just want to convince you of the beauty of the resurrection and why our religion is so special to have a founder that destroyed death. Because that's what people fear. They fear death. And if they don't, they should. They're lunatics. And then they fear what's after death. And they should do that too. But Jesus destroyed it all. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is preaching his first recorded sermon. He's in Antioch of Pisidia. I say this often to help you understand your Bible, that there's an Antioch in Syria, which is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. That was Paul's home church. But Antioch of Pisidia is over in Turkey across the Mediterranean Sea, and he's on his first evangelistic preaching trip, and he comes into Antioch, and they ask if he has anything he'd like to say to those that are gathered in the synagogue. And he says, I might have a word or two. And he stands up and preaches this sermon. Verse 26, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham. And this is not where he started. I'm just jumping into the middle of his sermon. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Acts 13, 27. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. 
But God raised him from the dead. There's one of those inspired disjunctives. But, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Do you see it? If there's any doubting Thomas is sitting near you, make sure they see it. Acts 13, the Apostle Paul says in verse 33, God hath fulfilled the promises to us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus again. Not that he caused Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary, but that he raised him from the dead. I know, when you look at these words, you, don't, you think of birth, but it's really resurrection. And there's a reason. When did Jesus, when was Jesus introduced to heaven as the Son of God? This day have I begotten thee, thou art my son. When did heaven first know Jesus was God's son and all the redeemed hosts that are up there? When Jesus rose again and ascended up into heaven, and not until then. So that this is quoted in Hebrews 1 as well. And on our website is a study entitled, This Day Have I Begotten Thee, that goes through slides and shows by much more evidence that this is about the resurrection. My point being, Psalm 2 said Jesus would rise again. Paul said it did. Isn't that what it says right here? As it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And Paul is appealing to Old Testament prophecies that spoke of the resurrection. And as con Verse 34, And as concerning that he raised him from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, he's going to pull Psalm 16. I will give you the sure, no, that's Isaiah 55. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Verse 35 is Psalm 16. Wherefore he saith also in another Psalm, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And then Paul reasons about David's body corrupting, though David wrote Psalm 16 and said, thou wilt not suffer my soul to corrupt. David was talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter did that on the day of Pentecost in the sermon in Acts 2. Paul does the same thing right here. The first P of the resurrection is it had been prophesied. In Psalm 2, in Psalm 16, in Psalm 22, that James read to us in the back room this morning, then in Psalm 110, because how can you be a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever unless you come back to life? The Lord hath sworn, he, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there's an unending life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Isaiah 53 said, he shall prolong his days. You just run over those words, Isaiah 53, he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Was this the pleasure of the Lord prospering in his hands? Or was that the curse of the Lord for sin on the cross of Calvary and the saving of souls prospered in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ because he rose from the dead and prolonged his days. I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up again. Let's get off this pee or we'll be here till the p.m. <coughs> By Roman accounting. Or Jewish accounting. Number two, priority of the resurrection. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection is a key component of our religion and our faith. 1 Corinthians 15, you read this verse last night if you read the resurrection chapter, or at least the first 23 verses of it, as I had suggested. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. The priority of the resurrection is that it has to happen. It's actually more important than the death because it confirms and gives validity and triumph and victory to the death. If Jesus had just died and been left on the cross and then in the ground, then buried and never rose again, we'd still be in our sins. And that's what this verse tells us. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Just believing in his death is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. 
So it's the priority. That means a matter that is of a higher order and importance for us to grasp about the redemptive plan of God. And the other verse on this particular, there's lots of verses on these points, but the other one I want to use at communion, it's Hebrews chapter 2, but we'll come to that in its time when we're at the Lord's table. Number three, the power of the resurrection. Turn to Matthew 27 with me. Does anyone know where I'm going when I say the power of the resurrection and then say Matthew 27? What event is in Matthew 27? Because Matthew 27 is about the crucifixion. Not till, yes, not till Matthew 28 do we read about the resurrection. So what is powerful in Matthew 27? This. Matthew 27 and verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. What did he cry with a loud voice? It is finished. How do you yield up the ghost? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose, comma, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. So, when Jesus said it is finished and gave up the ghost on the cross, having finished that stage of the, redempt, re, the redemptive plan, of the plan of redemption, the graves were opened by that earthquake. So cemeteries were all messed up. Stones were rolled away if you were a very rich person and could have a hewn sepulcher in the side of a mountain. But the tops were blown off. Graves were opened. It's a major operation to open a grave. You don't just put them six inches under. Bad things happen. The Lord blew the top off with his death. And then three days and three nights later when he rose from the dead, those saints kicked the tops off their caskets, climbed out, and came into Jerusalem and showed themselves the residual power of the resurrection. That should just light you up. You say, what else does the Bible tell us about it? Nothing. It's good enough for me right here. Where did light come from? Let there be light. Is that good enough for you? It's good enough for me. This is good enough for me, and I love this. The residual power of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection opens cemeteries. The power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 27. Do you know what Paul said his ambition was in Philippians chapter 3? Toward the end of his life, he still was talking about his ambition. I have not apprehended that for which I was apprehended. I still haven't achieved or attained what I should. I want to know him, Jesus Christ. Some of you know, and I'm glad, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Right. We all need the power of his resurrection in our lives every day. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that we believe the gospel because the same power was put forth toward us in regenerating us from death and trespasses and sins that raised the body of Jesus from the dead. Ephesians 1, 17 tells us that. And you start reading at 1, 17 and go right on into chapter 2. And, and you hath he quickened. What is the and therefore? And you hath he quickened. Because God first quickened the Lord Jesus Christ by mighty resurrection power. And when we are quickened from death and trespasses and sins, it's by mighty resurrection power. That's the power of the resurrection. P is the privacy of the resurrection. I've already explained it to you. Only a few insiders witnessed it firsthand. If you want to see a verse, look at Acts 13. I'm going to go there quickly and read it to you. Acts 13 and verse 31, it's a verse I just read to you. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. There were just a few witnesses that told about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's Acts 13, 31 is one of those places. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, if you read it last night, who was first in 1 Corinthians 15? Who, who saw Jesus first? Mary's not in 1 Corinthians 15. Peter, Cephas was first. And James is mentioned as having a private viewing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul is detailed to point out 
that there were above 500 brethren at once, and there were some women that were told about in the Gospels, but Peter, Paul starts with Peter, and he mentions James, and he says, I was the last one to see him. That's why he was the last apostle. But it's the privacy of the resurrection in the sense that only 520 ever saw the Lord Jesus Christ after he rose from the dead. The proof of the resurrection are the infallible proofs, and it's what we're reading in John chapter 20. It is in Acts where Luke wrote to Theophilus and said, Jesus showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. Proofs like, here are my hands, put your fingers in, give me something to eat. He ate a fish fillet at the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. The Bible tells us about it in John 21. Because when a, a spirit doesn't eat, but when Jesus wanted food and ate, that was a, an infallible proof that he was alive. They touched him. They handled him. John wrote in his first epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes. Is that an eyewitness? And have handled with our hands. That is a witness. So that is the proof of the resurrection. Then there's the persons of the resurrection, like Mary, Peter, James, and others that I've just mentioned. Then there's the preaching of the resurrection, which was the apostolic focus. Where do you want to turn in the book of Acts? Wherever you turn, it's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus conquered death. The founder of our religion and that commissioned us to preach to you, though you think we're uneducated, watch this, raise the dead. Jesus, who commissioned us, rose from the dead. He's defeated death. We have a message of hope and peace you've never heard before anywhere else. You've never even imagined it. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And so they would preach that way. Where do you want to go? Give me a chapter almost. Uh, Acts chapter 4. I'll skip Pentecost because you know he did it at Pentecost. He reasoned at length with the Jews. You all know that Pete, David Sepulcher is down the street, two blocks, turn left, and he's buried right there. But David said, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, and neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. David's corrupt. David was a prophet. David must have been talking about someone else. I happen to know who it was. It's Jesus of Nazareth. I've seen him alive. Acts chapter 4. Acts 4 and verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, that is, they had set the apostles in the midst of the council of the rulers of the Jews, they asked, by what power or by what name have ye done this? That's to heal the lame man. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Amen. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. And it just chapter after chapter after chapter, the emphasis is on the resurrection. That's why I mentioned to you Cornelius. Cornelius, you've heard about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you about his resurrection. In Athens, Greece, this babbler, that's what they called Paul, this babbler has some strange things because he was preaching the resurrection from the dead. And that's what he preached when they got him to Mars Hill. He said, God hath given assurance unto all men that he's going to judge you by raising Jesus from the dead because he's the judge. That's how Paul concluded his sermon in Acts 17. It's powerful. It's weighty. And some laughed, and some followed Paul out of that assembly. That's the preaching of the resurrection. How about the peculiarity of the resurrection? Is its role in our perfect, exclusive religion. It's peculiar to our religion that we have a founder that rose from the dead. And I could take and show you that. That's why the men of Athens had to take him to Mars Hill. They had never heard of such a thing, and they were the most knowledgeable men on earth. All they did was sit around and want to learn new things, but they hadn't heard about the resurrection from the dead. 
If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. It's the perpetuity of the resurrection. When I use the word perpetuity of the resurrection, what do I mean? How is the perpetual, how is resurrection maintained by a perpetual symbol? Baptist baptism. The perpetuity of the resurrection. Why do we baptize the way we do? Why do we argue about it? Why do we oppose infant sprinkling? Why do we oppose Mennonite pouring? Why? Because it's the perpetuity of the resurrection. We're declaring to the world, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you bury me in the water of baptism and raise me up again, that's because I believe in the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. It's the perpetuity of the resurrection. That's number nine. I hope you have them so far. Maybe I'll recap them. Uh, that means list them. Number 10, the peace of the resurrection is to comfort one another. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What words are of great comfort? Listen, verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do we believe it? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. If we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, we also believe that everyone that's asleep in Jesus will be raised from the dead. And so it's the peace of the resurrection by giving us peace about our greatest enemy, and that's death, from a natural standpoint. And more could be said on that. The practice of the resurrection illustrates our changed lives, that we're to rise to walk in newness of life. If ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above. Colossians 3.1 It's the practice of the resurrection by living a changed life. Then there's the promise of the resurrection. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It's the promise of the resurrection. It's why we bury and we don't cremate. Because it's the promise of the resurrection. Romans 8 and verse 11. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. Romans 8.11 he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Our mortal bodies are going to be brought back to life and raised up again. Amen. Verse 23, and not only they, that is the rest of the creation, but ourselves also, the children of God, which have the first fruits of the spirit, especially the Jewish converts like Paul, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption. To wit, Paul, what do you mean by adoption? To wit, the redemption of our body. Our bodies are going to be redeemed from the ground. They're the purchased possession of Jesus Christ. Jesus, our bodies are not our own. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your, in your body because the body's been bought with a price. We don't, bur we don't cremate. Remember, it burns me up. I enjoyed all of you being twice as smart as I am. We bury instead of cremate. Thank you, Lord, for showing us these things by the promise of the resurrection. And then there's the punishment of the resurrection. If you don't believe the resurrection, you're going to be punished with everlasting torment from the presence of God, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you're not going to believe the gospel account that God's given and the witness that he's given of his son. There's 13 Ps of resurrection. The prophecy of the resurrection, priority, power, privacy, proof, persons, preaching, peculiarity, perpetuity, peace, practice, promise, and punishment. The apostolic emphasis, the apostles' emphasis, especially in the gospel accounts, is evidentiary proof, proof that provides evidence of a fact. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, there's varied accounts. I've already told you that if you want a real puzzle, it's going to be the resurrection accounts in the four passages that have been read to you this morning. And when you're done and you think you have it solved, send it to me. I'll write you back with any number of questions you want. No man's ever solved it to the satisfaction of other consciences. You say, can it be solved? Easily. 
You can solve it several different ways. It just, decide, it just depends on how you want to solve it. Because each of them had a different view. Now, why is just Mary mentioned here? We know there are other women. She admitted it in verse 2 by using the plural we. Why is just Mary? And that's just a reminder to you that how the Gospels are written. When Matthew wrote about the Gadarene, how many were there? You're saying, I'm not sure, but I know where you're going. There were two. When we read it in Mark, how many Gadarenes were there? One. When Jesus left the city of Jericho, we meet a man named Blind Bartimaeus. What gospel are you going to go to to find just one? Because Mark and Luke have two. You say, that bothers me. It shouldn't bother you. Do you know what a crime scene investigator does with two reports like that? There is no collaboration. The substance is all the same. The circumstances are different. You ought to read them. I mean 100 years ago. I mean 150 years ago. Crime scene investigators looking at the gospel accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ are perfect in their differences, but identical in the substance of what they're describing. Just like all... If you've been in court for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you've heard all eyewitnesses account for things differently by having a different perspective or angle or sight line on the whole event, yet the substance is the same, and so the God has written his Bible with evidence that is just the right kind of evidence to close a case. What case are we closing? Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. More could be said on that. I'm, I'm, if you want a mental puzzle, or you want to learn how some of those men reason, and how they look at the Word of God, even from a natural standpoint, even from a natural standpoint, looking at the evidence of John chapter 20, they will come to the conclusion Jesus rose from the dead. And that it's an airtight conclusion, as airtight as anything they've ever brought to court. Unless you bring somebody in. John had a purpose for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, for the assurance of your salvation. You can know that you have eternal life by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John's emphasis on several individuals should provide an impetus, a motivation for you to want to be one of those. Anyone in here can be special or a favorite of God, just like David was a favorite, just like John was a favorite. And John said, the disciple that Jesus loved, Mary was a favorite. Everyone in here can be one, if you want to be. You say, but if only one can win the Christian race, then the likelihood of me being first is slim. <laughs> No, we're supposed to run it as only one can win the race, but there can be lots of winners in the sight of God. Who wants to be like Mary Magdalene? Amen. The passion that she had for the Lord Jesus Christ and to have Jesus Christ come to her first. Mary Magdalene believed the least and loved the most and had her faith increased first. Do you understand how that works? Faith is not first, it's passion. It's passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. When you don't know what's going on and you're not sure of the scriptures, Mary, Mary went with spices. Why did she take spices three days and three nights after Jesus died? Because she didn't believe. It never crossed her mind. But she had the greatest passion. And so she hung out there at the mouth of the tomb and she stooped down and looked in. Oh, there's some men in there. Let me go in and ask them what they know about his body. The others ran off frightened, and the, the angels had to say, fear not. She went in, chatted with them, came back out, still crying. She wasn't going to leave. Do you remember when Moses would go into the temp tabernacle in the book of Exodus? Do you remember? And he would meet God and then come out and have to go about his business. There was a young man that wouldn't come out of that tabernacle. His name was Joshua because he wanted that special presence of God and he just wanted to stay there and the Bible tells us that. And we have a New Testament Joshua and her name is Mary Magdalene and I want all of us to be like her. That is my goal for preaching. That is why I'm alive. It's not to help you understand all the details of John 20 because you should already believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why I baptized you. But I want to help us all progress to love the Lord Jesus Christ like Mary did, then he will give us the faith and show us things that we do not know yet. Because passion leads to faith in this particular kind of a circumstance where she did not know and God had not revealed to her yet the scriptures, but her passion got her 
the first appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want him to appear to each of you, whether it's through his word, through your prayers, through your meditation, just in your soul, while you're sleeping, like he did Elihu and David. This, that, that's my chief goal. I want us to love the Lord Jesus Christ more like Mary Magdalene. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.